Do you think you've got the one singular perfect mix of data science tools? Or does that ideal combination always depend on the nature of a specific project? Welcome to Data Science Mixer, a podcast featuring top experts in lively and informative conversations that will change the way you do data science. I'm Susan Curry Civic, Senior Data Science Journalist for the Alteryx Community. In this episode, I talk with Nikita Atkins of GHD, a global professional services company, about the diverse variety of data science tools and strategies he's used in his work. We'll hear how he and his teams have combined code with AutoML in Alteryx to tackle millions of rows of data, affecting billions of dollars of commerce, and governed by hundreds of rapidly changing business rules. Whew. Flexibility has been a key to these projects' success, and an open-minded approach also allowed for some creative new ways to address familiar problems. And Nikita will tell us about the effects of adopting a different mix of tools in terms of time, costs, and efficiency. Plus, he's built new ways to help his teams share data and custom-built tools to save time and increase everyone's data science capabilities. Let's meet Nikita and get right down to business. So, hi everyone. My name is Dickie Atkins. I have been doing data science, business intelligence, data management for over 20 years. I went to university down the road, University of Wollongong, and did my mathematics degree over 20 years ago now. And I always thought when I did my degree, I would get into something like banking or finance or actuaries. But I ended up jumping in and, and, and getting a job originally in business intelligence, something I had not even heard of at the time and obviously did. For the first 10 years of my career, did a lot in business intelligence and data warehousing and, and, and helping organizations get more out of their data. And so I worked on that all the way up to about uh, 2008, 2009. And that was fascinating work and really interesting. But about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, decided I really want to get in, use my mathematics degree more and more. And so I got into an area that was known back then as data mining. Data mining turned into data science and turned into machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so... I, I feel like I have been on a whirlwind journey over the last, <laughs> what is it now? Been 12, 13 years now uh, around data science. I have worked with some of the biggest organizations around this, working with miners, oil and gas, transportation, and even worked with governments on a range of different options. All have very different, but similar challenges. I last, I joined GHD about three years ago. GHD is an engineering and design firm. It's been around for 90 years and we're actually employee owning with about 10,000 employees worldwide. And we do every, anything to do with engineering and design. We don't do construction, but we do everything else. So we help sectors such as energy and resources, water, transportation, environment. We even have our own architecture teams and we do property and buildings, for example. At GHD realized about three years ago that, you know, they wanted to start up something called GHD Digital, and that mm -hmm. was to help their clients and other clients transition into new ways of using digital technology and the uh, digital intelligence and the advanced analytics team started about three years ago and they asked me to join them to help spin up and 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 build this team uh in australia and, and globally so after first joining ghd virtually you know there was no one there from an advanced analytics point of view I, I i basically focused on my role transitioned very quickly to half and half. So I have a 50% external focus where I'm, as a consultant, I'm focused on, you know, how do we 
do business development and how do we sell data science and then obviously deliver that to our clients. And you'll hear about some of the clients that we work yeah. with facing. And then I also have an internal focus as well. And that internal focus is as the data science service line leader, uh, I am identifying the best for approaches, standards, methodologies, and building up training and education on how we can use data and data science better across the whole organization. So working with our traditional engineering teams across, you know, as I said, water, energy, transportation, for example, how can we better use data? How can we better capture data? How can we then use that to deliver better insights to our clients while delivering on, you know, designing the next bridge or the next freeway or, you know, helping mines uh, from an environmental point of view as well. So it's been a fascinating journey and every day I, I'm, uh, is different day, in, in, different organizations, different clients, different challenges. Nice. I love it. So a couple of important questions before we go on to hear more about those projects that you worked on. Could you share with us which pronouns you use? Yep. So he, him. Cool. Thank you. And as you may know, on Data Science Mixer, we typically try to enjoy some sort of special beverage or snack while we're chatting. So do you have something there with you today? Yes, I'm enjoying my, my regular morning latte. So just a regular latte, but it's a lovely one. Excellent. Good choice. So yeah, I'm uh, once again, as on previous recent episodes, going through the selection of LaCroix sparkling water flavors. So today is lime. So very exciting. Today. Very nice. Yes. Good, good, good. All right. So one of the projects you'd worked on recently that I've heard a little bit about was with the Port of Melbourne looking at commodities and shipping containers. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah. So the Port of Melbourne uh, has been a fascinating project. So for those people who aren't aware, of, uh, Port of Melbourne is the largest capital city container and general cargo port in Australia. It's worth about $7.5 billion for the Australian economy. And they manage a site that's worth, you know, it's over 500 hectares, 1,200 acres. So it's a large area that works 24 by 7. And they get approximately 3 million TEU containers every year. So it's a very substantial port. One of the challenges that the port and the Victorian government has is there's very little visibility that they need to uh, on where containers uh, go to once they leave the port or where they come from for from our uh, exports point of view. So the port, which is actually currently on a private lease from the Victorian government, along with the Victorian government, asked GHD if we would run this, what we, what we call the origin destination survey to help basically capture a lot of data and understand the supply chain, the, the broader supply chain networks that the port of, that directly tied to the port of Melbourne, port of Melbourne around container movements. It sounds a simple problem, but it's a hugely um, challenging one because uh, there are so many different stakeholders that we had to deal with from empty container parks, train operators, truck operators, you know, you're dealing with everyone from a little trucking operator that may be family owned all the way up to massive importers and exporters of, of goods. So, and we had to deal with everyone in between and that often meant getting lots of slices of data from, I think it was over a hundred different stakeholders. And in the end, we got 57 different source data, all different formats, all different granularities. And the challenge we had to do was stitch it all together to present a, a seamless view of how our, a single container, for example, moved out of the port via train or truck to the eventual customer. And then how that same container may have moved back into the port through an export process. So some of the numbers we had to deal with was like, it was over a hundred million records across 57 different data sources. This was for a two month period. So we looked at September and October, 2019. 
And that was hugely challenging on its own. And it was a huge amount of data cleansing with about, I think it was close to 200 business rules that we had to apply throughout the whole process. Having said that, we were really successful when the data cleansing aspect of that, once we get all the data, took about 11 weeks, which was really rapid for this. We were <laughs> running almost daily iterations. I mean, we would run a data source. We would then run a set of rules, show the client at the end of the day. They would give us feedback. And usually the next day, we would rerun that with a new iteration, a new feed. One, All of this was done through Altrix. Um, and some of the things that we did with Altrix, obviously the data cleansing was huge. We started doing some of this cleansing using Python and Pandas. But what we found really quickly was that it was very difficult for us to keep up with the very, the rapid iterations and the changes we needed to make. So we made, we made the, the decision very quickly to move from Python to sort of Altrix for the data cleansing aspects. <laughs> and Altrix actually became more critical, not just as a development tool, but actually Altrix became critical as part of our project management. So as I said, we would run iteration and we would show the client the end results. And Altrix actually was part of that project management standup that we would have. We would show them the rules, we'd explain how we had modified it, we would show them the results. And so Altrix became really easy because even though our client didn't understand Altrix, they understood pretty quickly what we were looking at, how we were modifying things. And that actually gave them a real sense of confidence because they could understand what they were seeing on the screen very quickly. And thus they had confidence in our results. Nice. Very cool. And the last part of that is, so we ran that for two months of September, October, but we had to, to deliver a report on the whole of 2019. And so what we ended up doing is using intelligence suite to use the machine learning aspects to take that two month period mm -hmm. and to extrapolate, um, all the commodities the retainer movements, supply chains across the whole year. Traditionally, this would have been just done with someone going, you know, add this month times this month together, take by a weighting factor. And that would be it. We decided that we use the auto amount because we wanted to make sure that we picked up any macro seasonality and micro seasonalities across the whole year, yeah. across commodities. And so the intelligence suite in the auto ML had been really important for us to, to do that. And what we did was we extrapolated that. And so we had a detailed data set that said these all, here's all your containers. And this is where they, how they went to, which postcodes they went to and whether they went by, by railroad, how many depots they stopped in along the way. Uh, when we went back and looked at the results and we compared it with the baseline data that the Port of Melbourne had, which is. Uh, not as detailed as what we had, but obviously it allowed us to compare from a container and commodity point of view. Mm -hmm. The AutoML capability got us within 99.9995%. And look, the, the, the way we did our validations when we looked at container counts and our total weight or TEU, our TEU was, was spot on. We had zero error for TEU, so that was really good validation. And we only missed out on a container count of about 10 out of, as I said, um, 3 million container movements every year. So it was very small numbers, errors that we were getting at and out of interest, the 10 containers that we missed was a very unique particular commodity that we had not seen and it only happened in one or two months. So, uh, the, the port, once we saw that basically it had huge confidence because this was a, a hugely rich data set that they got out of us from the <laughs> survey, which will now help them from a uh, capital planning for the next 10 years. It helps the Victorian government make better planning decisions about where, what upgrades they need to, as part of road and rail. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in Australia at the moment, we're doing a very substantial infrastructure project, which is called the Inland Rail, and that will connect Melbourne and Brisbane 
uh, together for freight, a very important freight corridor going forward. Yeah. And But this project will help justify the numbers and help Victoria, New South Wales and, and Queensland make better decisions about how they can encourage more freight movement onto that new land rail when that's completed in a few years' time. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's awesome to think of how that project, I mean, a huge project, but to have even a more massive impact across all of those different things that you just mentioned. It's neat to think about all of the, the consequences that can kind of ripple forth from the work that you've done there. I'm curious, for those who are not familiar with the Alteryx Intelligence Suite, this is the suite of tools that is in addition to Alteryx Designer that includes assisted modeling, auto ML, some natural language processing tools, computer vision tools, and so forth. You mentioned here your choice to use an auto ML approach. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that, if you can, kind of why that was a, a good option for you with this particular project? Yeah, so we use this project, we use the version one of the intellectual suite. And so it had the wizard and we used uh, the wizard back then for that. Mm -hmm. uh, we really wanted to, we didn't know which was the base, the, the right machine learning model for this. Uh, sure. We always suspected that it would be end up being a random forest. The AutoML capability in intelligence, we really just allowed us to focus on getting that data right, focus on the feature cleansing, and then let the, let Alteryx run those models, you know, in, in, in the end, I think we ran about 50 different models through that to let it decide which was the best model that would give us the best accuracy, the best stability for our results. Uh, the power of this was, as I said, the business rules changed on a, often on a, a very quick basis. We could. The, the, the intelligence suite not only let us pick the right model for the situation, but as data changed quickly and the rules changed quickly, the inputs changed and the, we could just click off and let that run and it would then modify the model based on what it saw any, any new features. So it huh. was very powerful. It allowed us to focus, focus on what we needed to, which was getting the best quality data into those projects. And that was really powerful and just allowed us to do what needed to be done, which was making sure to focus on that data quality cleansing and the final outputs. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious too, speaking of ML and using ML in interesting ways, you had also told me a bit about a project you worked on. And this is, this is kind of funny when you were describing to me the Australian clean energy regulator. And I was like, oh, I wonder what the actual agency name is, but it is actually called, if I'm correct here, the clean energy regulator, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. And it is called the clean energy regulator. <laughs> so we had done the Port of Melbourne and then we got this project about six months later. And so <laughs> we were much more wiser for the, the Port of Melbourne experience for this. So the clean energy regulator, every year it's, it has a, a need to basically uh, predict how many PV or photovoltaic or solar as we know it how mm -hmm. many solar um, installations are going to happen across the country, both in a residential and commercial context. GHD had been doing this for, the, for two years previous to this, and we had traditionally used econometrics modeling and traditional, as I said, econometrics modeling to do this work. We decided this year that we would do it slightly differently, and there was a few reasons for it. So we wanted to use machine learning to do it, backed up by our advisory and economists as well. And the reason we had to do that was over the last 12 months to two years, we've had some really interesting problems in Australia. One, we had the major bushfires in, back at the end of 2019. And obviously with COVID lockdown, there, there, there has been a certain level of 
there would have been an impact on solar. We weren't sure if it was a positive impact or negative impact. And we definitely felt as an organization that machine learning through Altrix particularly was really required to help capture some of these nuances associated with natural disasters and pandemics and so forth. So what we did was as part of this, again, we had basically at this stage built a very interesting database, which allowed us to capture some of the raw data that we use for a lot of these models across clients. So our bureau statistics, our census data, we get updates from market data, our reserve bank and so forth. We actually capture that on a daily basis and store that historical information. So allow us to have a starting point for all our clients. So when the clean energy regulator came to us, we basically grabbed that data and we had really detailed population forecasts, really detailed building and dwelling information across <laughs> by, we actually had around a couple of machine learning models to break it down by postcode. So we actually had a really detailed data collection that we had to start with. Bring that in, bring in um, lots of data that we had never used before, such as the economy, number of visitors coming to Australia, number of people, you know, Australian citizens who are going away from holidays. We decided that we would use these rather than use a measure of how many COVID cases there were. We actually use economic indicators across the nation to help use those as a dummy variable for the pandemic. The reason we chose that is that these models now future-proof. So, you know, hopefully we'll be all coming out of the pandemic. We're all vaccinated, have we seen. That will be terrific. But this model will still hold true because it will be based on general indicators that can be used going forward. Right. The, and the great thing about it is we used AutoML. We ran close to a thousand different models across all these different indicators across a variety of residential, commercials, a range of different installation sizes. So, yeah, 50 megawatt installations, one megawatt installations, and, and even lower across by state, by postcode. We ran all these different models, aggregating them back up, and then we basically had this really interesting model and data set that successfully showed how, believe it or not, that residential solar uptake was actually going up because of COVID, oh. uh, which is contrary. But the idea behind that is, well, I can't go overseas. I've got you know a few thousand dollars left in my bank account. Let's use it to spend it on solar so that we're spending less on electricity. Right. It, it sounds country surprising, but it was really interesting. Yeah. However, we knew that there was a natural tipping point where a lot of people last year in 2019 had done that. Some had done it a little bit earlier in 2020. And what we successfully showed and modeled was that there was, a, we had got that saturation point and that the second half of 2020, there would be a slower, slowing down of um, solar uptakes in, in residential areas. But it's a really interesting exercise that has been, the clean energy regulator has definitely appreciated our insights on this. Yeah. And, and it allowed us to show how uh, machine learning can be applied in a normally uh, an, an economic area, mm -hmm. but with really successful outcomes for the client in a way that we can explain it to them. And hopefully it puts us in good stead to helping the clean energy regular, regulator um, in following years. Yeah, absolutely. Good deal. So one other thing that you had mentioned in our previous conversation was sort of like a, an internal algorithm catalog or repository that you had created using Alteryx server. And I thought that was a really interesting concept that this was a way that internally you're working to make your data science work and data engineering more efficient and, and more repeatable. Uh, is that something that you can tell us a little bit about? 
Yeah, absolutely. As I said, GHD has been around for many two years and we have lots of engineers around the place. And a lot of them actually use um, R and Python in their day-to-day jobs for other reasons. So, you know, we have, for example, hydrologists who do very detailed modeling uh, mm-hmm. and some of them use actually R and Python. And they have built a series of um, algorithms and code and libraries internally to help their clients. One of the jobs I have as that service line leader, the internal world, is to start to capture and identify these things. And at the moment, they tend to be captured on various file systems. There's a little bit of version control, but not much. Mm. And But there's a mishmash of this stuff all over the place. What we're trying to use is start capturing some of those um, mm-hmm. initially done in traditional data science, but in, other, in these other areas. Grab these algorithms and put them through in as an Altrix workflow. Mm-hmm. Whether we're storing them Initially, we're capturing them as macros within the Altrix workflow, saving them to Altrix server, and then having these actually on the Altrix server, they're version controlled, they have their own little community. So we have a water community, an energy community, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then people can go in there, actually call that project, call that um, macro, run it. You know, they can up, they basically upload a CSV or sales file and run that. Or they can download the macro, can see the Python code and R code, and they can modify it and update it back and having full version control. What we really want, and we're using Altrix Server to do that, and we really want Altrix Server to be the one-stop shop for people to either not reinvent the wheel. You know, there are really some really good stuff so we can have standard algorithms there used by our clients, no matter what industry they're from. Uh, also explore and learn as well. So there's, we have a huge interest, in, particularly in R and Python. Mm-hmm. And we think that rather than it's the natural next step. You go and do your basic training in Python, learn how to read code, but then you can use, see these particular algorithms in use and understand its context in a broader, more engineering specific example. So uh, there's a real win-win here where you know, people can, if they want to, can just run the code, get the apples they want. They can modify that knowing it's fully version control, but also mm-hmm. they can learn and develop their capabilities over time as well. Yeah, that's very cool. I I had not thought about it as a, a learning opportunity in the sense that you just described it, but that makes a lot of sense. That's neat. So any other projects that you wanted to talk about that maybe have come to mind um, as we've been chatting? There's another one, again, it's a little bit more internal focus, but it's one that is really interesting at the moment. So you know, we've been around for a long time and we've been actually using computers for a long time and we have a very comprehensive internal file file drive and we have our SharePoint system that we also use as well. <laughs> the problem is a lot of that data is captured by projects. And so, you know, a project that was done last year or two years ago, it's often completed archive and we forget the, the inherent knowledge or content that we've stored in that project over time. And so what we developed is a small robot actually within Altrix to scan our file systems, shared file systems, the ones that are, are publicly open. And just, you know, catalog all the different files that we've got. So we've got spatial files, we've got images, we've got Python scripts and that sort of things. At the moment, we're still running that code at the moment, but just to give you a sense of the numbers we're getting, we've captured 1 billion files. So that's huge number of inherent knowledge then. The metadata alone, so not the content, but the metadata about, you know, basically the file name, the size, the directory. It's currently 500 megabytes alone. It is a huge data set, just the metadata. And we're using that to catalog and use that for search capabilities. So for example, at the moment, someone's come to me and say, we're looking for all data that may be associated with weather. 
where have we captured weather information or capital bought weather information? And where have we got that across different projects? Well, we can now do a rather simple search across that Madlava to help us identify all the different folders and maybe labeled with weather or meteorology or climate and particular meteorological file types as well. Mm -hmm. And that helps us to quickly identify that. What we're trying to do next is take those different file systems and then identify those that need to be put into a centralized database or data lake. And so that we'll have a standardized approach going forward. Thanks. The benefits of this is, is that, you know, we have, often have to pay for data, whether we have to pay for satellite imaging, for example, or pay sure. for weather information or pay for other things. If we can identify some of this done set, centralize it, and then when a new project comes up, we can actually say, do you need to buy this? Because we've got this image, for example, satellite imaging for this same location 12 months ago. If you're happy with the satellite image being only 12 months old, that maybe you can save a couple of thousand dollars. No, yeah. we do. We do tens of thousands of projects every year. So you, if you save a hundred dollars per project, you know, that, 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 that number can add up very quickly in terms of licenses saved. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I love that. I love that you can use both the efficiency and then the potential of that data. I mean, I can see like even a recommendation engine or something being based on that. Like, oh, you're looking at weather data. Would you also like to look at this other data set? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Cool. So it's come up a couple of times here, and I'm not sure if there's there's more that you'd like to say about this, but you've mentioned a few things about how low-code or no-code and or on level tools have come up in your various projects. And it sounds like these have integrated with or and complemented the manual kinds of coding that your data scientists are doing. Can you talk a little bit more maybe about that and how those tools have come into play for you, generally speaking? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you an example. All right. So... Most of the people that are I hire as data scientists are either R programmers or Python programmers from way back, right? Mm -hmm. And although I've used Altrix now for coming on to five years and love it, you know, a lot of the people in my team had not heard of you used Altrix before. And initially there was a little hesitation, particularly when I brought it in. So like, no, let's have a look at this. And, and, and particularly I'm among hardcore data scientists, but we did, we basically did a time and study, uh, time in motion study around this, particularly around data cleansing. Oh, yeah. And there was a really interesting um, result out of this where depending on the proficiency of the programmer, you know, whether they've been using, we did this for comparing our tricks with Python, particularly if they'd been using Python for 10 or so years versus those who are very new to Python, but we found that no matter what the proficiency, there was a definitely a cost saving when it comes to data, data cleansing. <laughs> so, uh, we were finding that, uh, for data cleansing, you know, completing data, selection, filtering, all those wonderful data operations that you need to do with the, uh, at the start. If you were very proficient in Python, the, 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 the ratio was about four to one. That is what you would take about to do in three to four hours in Python, we could do in one hour in, uh, in Altrix Designer. Mm -hmm. Now, if we looked at someone like a, a graduate who had just come out of university with a basic understanding of Python, limited experience on that, that ratio jumped up to about 10 to one. That is wow. what they would take to do in Python in about 10 hours, they could do in Altrix in one hour. Oh. So the cost savings alone was, was huge. And one of the things that the, my hardcore data scientists said very quickly is like, you know, we like this, not because it's program is low code, but because 
it means that we can spend less time doing what we don't like. Okay. It means no, no damn scientist on their right mind likes data cleansing. And in fact, I, I actually do, but I know I'm the exception. I love data cleansing. But uh, what they've meant for them is like every hour I don't need to do data cleansing is another hour I can spend doing my machine learning, right. doing uh, my feature selections and doing that kind of statistical mathematical stuff that I, they all enjoy doing. Sure. So, so and they got turned around very quickly uh, in terms of that. The, the other benefit out of this was the whole, just lowers the risk profile for our, our projects. So if I pick up, and one of the reasons we look, we, when we look at Orc software, we look at basically how quickly a new person can pick up the software and how long before they become proficient in it. All right. Mm-hmm. If you're honest to yourself about Python, you know, depending on how immersive you can be, you can be very proficient in Python somewhere between, well. Some people say six to 12 months. I think it's closer to 12 to 36 months. If you're honest about your metrics, we measure that down to weeks. You know, I believe through the huge work that's been done in like Ultrix community, the free training materials that's available, you know, I have had a hardcore data scientist go from not knowing Ultrix to installing it and finishing their first level, I think it's called foundation certification in Ultrix. They did that in eight weeks. Yeah. Just to give you indication. And that means then I can, if someone unfortunately leaves in this marketplace and there's huge demand for data scientists, I can bring someone else in and I, they can actually pick up what that person's done in Ultrix field quickly because I know they can come up to speed and actually understand that because of that low code visual nature of Ultrix. So as a result of that, I think, you know, my team internally are huge advocates now of, of Ultrix. But having said that, they still understand that Ultrix is still a framework for them mm-hmm. and there's still opportunities for us to program and develop our algorithms in R and Python, particularly in niche areas. So for example, hydrology is a classic example. We do a lot of hydrology work. Oh, you know, Ultrix doesn't have much hydrology uh, macros out there, <laughs> funny enough. So what do we do? We use Ultrix still, but we program uh, particularly in R in this example, because they've got very neat, good models that we can use in R. Cool. We program those. In our, in our node, and then we put it through as an Altrix workflow. It just then cements that, and then we can just modify that code occasionally as well. Right. Uh, so that's been really powerful. The last thing I will say is that more, more what we're doing is moving away from R to Python. But again, that process doesn't change. So if we have something in R, but it's not efficient, it's not, it's not running as quickly as we'd like, then I will take that R code, I'll give it to one of my Python experts and say, oh, can we actually reprogram that in Python? to make it a little bit more efficient as well. But guess what? The, last, the great thing is the macro doesn't change. You take out the R node, we put it in a Python node. Great. It's got Jupyter notebooks in there. That's all, all good. But fundamentally, Altrix becomes well, the framework which executes that. And that doesn't change whether we were running it R or Python. And, then, and the great thing is the end user doesn't see any difference for, for their perspective. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I'm just thinking now of the comments on this podcast episode and how we're going to get the, the R and Python debate going here. But. <laughs> so, so funny you should say that, you know, I have been an R programmer for way back and, you know, you tend to see that the people that come from a more traditional mathematics statistics background, they will tend to lean towards R. Sure. Having said that, I am now coming up, you know, I am using Python more and more and I have come to the conclusion there are some things that Python does more efficiently than R. 
particularly because, you know, it is 64 bit, you do have a range of different options to paralyze and, 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 and split up in terms of multi-threading. So there are causes for it, but having said that, at the end of the day, as a, as a data scientist, as a consultant, we use the tools that our clients require us to use. So there are a lot of organizations that says we need hydrology modeling, modeling, and some of them will actually say, you must use these libraries in R. So we are flexible. We need to be flexible. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I think it's great whether you use R or Python, but ultimately we need to make sure that no matter what tool you use, you present the findings in a way that I find interesting and, 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 and they can slice and dice into it. So, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about, and I'll maybe come back and talk about it another day is <clears throat> every data science project we do at GHD, we always develop a series of dashboards and, <laughs> and, and, and interactive dashboards that we present back to class. We never provide a client just with a spreadsheet. Sometimes clients <laughs> insist on a spreadsheet. But we all, we know that the best thing for them to do is using dashboards to slice and dice their results. Sure. And, and I think that's fundamentally important to everything we do. It doesn't matter whether it's an R or Python. It doesn't matter if you use Tableau or Power BI, another debate that's very rich at the moment. At the end of the day, it needs to be providing the right results in the right format for our clients to get the maximum knowledge and insights out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. So one question that we always ask everybody on the podcast, and we call this the alternative hypothesis segment here. The question is, what is something that people think is true about data science or about being a data scientist, but that you have found in your experience to be incorrect? I, I think there are two, two, two things that I challenge my team on every day. <laughs> Number one is there's always a better algorithm. And so some data scientists would love to spend time saying, okay, now maybe if I tweak this random forest, or maybe if I use these different ensemble methods, or maybe if I move from a random forest to a neural network, or maybe if I go towards that to use even a deep learning network, yeah. I could get better results. And, and some of that, sometimes that is true, but I would argue, and I have frequently argued with my team members. Okay, for every hour that you spend looking for a better algorithm, why don't you spend that extra hour data cleansing mm. or mm -hmm. doing a better feature selection or feature engineering sure. uh, and doing something around the data, better, collecting better data? Mm -hmm. What's the impact? And in some projects, we've actually found that actually going back and actually collecting better data, mm -hmm. cleansing our data a little bit better, classifying it a little bit better. Or yeah, doing a little bit special, you know, doing your specialized feature engineering or feature selection, we get a significant jump in accuracy than if we had done to another algorithm. Right. So I think sometimes in data science, data science, we get focused on the algorithm that mm -hmm. we use, and that is an important aspect because you don't want to use the wrong algorithm for the wrong purpose. Sure. But sometimes data cleansing can provide the same jump in accuracy depending on what you're looking at. Right. So that's number one. <laughs> and number two, I will say, contrary to that, and the flip side of that is there is an assumption that people think that pro data science projects fail because of data. Hmm. I will say that I have many, a six, I've had many a project data science project fail. And I would say the majority of the time the data science projects fail is not because of the data. Data technology is predictable. I think that people. And being able to, to add the for things like change management, 
strong communication, delivery of results in a clear and concise way that people can understand is so important. And I will say that most of the time that my projects have failed in my past 20 years has been because of people reasons, Perfect. rarely is it because of data reasons. So one of the reasons back, if I could put my hat back on, when I think back on diamond mining, one of the reasons why diamond mining failed to jump, uh, to be picked up back then in the, in the nineties and the, and the early two thousands wasn't because of the yeah, lack of algorithms or techniques. It was because there was a overemphasis on technology, uh, technical aspects and t technical speak. Right. Over business speak. And so people and being able to translate from something mathematical to business and vice versa is I think one of the reasons why some projects to do not get as much out of them, uh, not, not as successful as they would like to be. Those are great points. I think maybe we need to do a special episode of data science mixer just on failure <laughs> discussed, you know, and I think those are, we often talk about the things that worked and the things that were successful, but I think some of the things you've just highlighted as causes for failure, maybe need to see a little more discussion too. So. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to our data science mixer chat with Nikita Atkins. Join us on the Alteryx community for this week's cocktail conversation to share your thoughts. Nikita talked about handling projects where the data and the parameters of the situation are both changing rapidly. He mentioned using AutoML in the Alteryx Intelligence Suite to adapt quickly to those changes. Have you faced a similar issue of constant change while developing your own projects? What strategies have you used to deal with this kind of challenge? Share your thoughts and ideas by leaving a comment directly on the episode page at community.alteryx.com slash podcast, or post on social media with the hashtag data science mixer and tag Alteryx. Cheers.